0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. We are finishing our sermon series on First and Second Samuel, uh, and, and as Kyle mentioned, it's uh, it's been a little bit. And I wanted to open our sermon today with this question of whether or not you feel like your prayers are answered. Of course, we're good Christians. We know that God hears our prayers, but does it feel like He answers our prayers? Because as a pastor, this is probably one of the most frequent questions that I get. Does God hear our prayers? Do our prayers do anything? And if I'm honest, not only have I received that question a lot, but I've also asked that question a lot myself. How do we pray powerfully? Because it often feels like not only are my prayers not answered in the way that I would expect, but that he doesn't even hear them. Now again, as Christians, sometimes we can, we can formulate incorrect responses to this feeling. We recognize we have this feeling that it doesn't feel like God answers our prayers, and so we start saying, well, what's the explanation for it? And sometimes we turn to the story like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden. They talked with him face to face. They were able to present their requests to God face to face. And yet when they sinned, right, There was distance in their relationship. They were put out of the garden. They could no longer make their requests the way that they once could. Their prayers changed a little. And we look at them and we say, well, they were sinners and were put further away from God, and I know that I'm a sinner. Maybe I'm put further away from God too. Is God listening? Does He care? As we finish 2 Samuel today, uh, the books of First and Second Samuel started with so much promise. If you remember, there was this declaration that there was going to be a king, and the idea was that this king was going to stabilize Israelize, Israel's relationship with their God. This king was going to be a representative, better than the rest of them, the best example of what Israelites should be. And this king would guarantee that their prayers would be heard, that God would be for them, fighting for them, on their side, and protecting them. But their kings were not nearly as good of an example as they should have been. They weren't the best example of an Israelite. If anything, they were the worst example of what an Israelite could be. Even David. If we know of any of the kings of Israel, we know of King David, you know, David and Goliath, um, that, that David, he wasn't good enough. And at the end of his life, as he's about to pass away, all of Israel is questioning, is God still for us? Will he hear us when we cry out? Now, here at the end of 2 Samuel, we're actually going to be studying a psalm, which is a little funny that we're going to be studying a psalm in the end of 2 Samuel because psalms are in psalms, right? But as you might know, David wrote a bunch of the psalms, and this psalm right here is almost word for word Psalm 18. So if you were to read our passage today and then you were to also open up Psalm 18, you'd see almost the same thing. David wrote this psalm to remind himself and his people that God does indeed answer prayers. It helps us to understand how Israel used psalms, because they would sometimes sing them or chant them, but they were used as prayers, the hymn book or the prayer book of ancient Israel. So what David did in his brilliance was he said, my people feel like they have this worry that God's not going to hear them. Um, I'm going to write them a prayer. And in this prayer, I'm also going to show them what they need to believe about their God so that they might pray powerfully and know that their prayers Heard. And so as we study this psalm today, I hope that we find the same truths that David was trying to teach his people that God does indeed hear our prayers. Now, if you're with us every week, you're used to me reading the entire section of passage and you standing, and you'll notice that this is like five pages long. Um, I'm not going to do that this morning, but I hope that as I go through and I read sections here and there, you'll give just as much attentiveness to God's word as you would if you were standing. Because although the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of the Lord does stand forever. Sometimes we just feel like cogs in a machine. I'm sure you've had this experience as well, but the place that I've experienced it most of my life, as I reflected, is dealing with health insurance companies. So when I first left home, I went to a college out of state, and my dad's insurance that I was under uh, didn't quite work the same way out of state. I had to file a bunch of paperwork, and then when I actually needed it, it was not accepted. I couldn't get the healthcare that I needed, and as I like called through the phone tree of people, I just got an empty voidness and sent around, and nobody could answer the problem that I had. But this problem didn't stop just in college. When Margaret and I got married, we had to navigate the healthcare marketplace, and then when Joaquin was, or when Margarita was pregnant with Joaquin, uh, Margarita was on Medicaid, and I had to navigate Medicaid to try to get the help that my wife needed, which was surprisingly difficult to do. And that comes all the way into here in Puerto Rico, dealing with Triple S and trying to get the coverage that I need. I'm sure a lot of you have had similar experience with health insurance companies. We can feel powerless, right? Not just the cog in the machine of meaningless, insignificant, and easily easily replaceable, but also hopeless to be able to get the answer that we need. All day spent in a phone tree only for requests to be ignored or inadequately answered. I think this is how we feel praying to God sometimes. We spend all day praying, only for our requests to feel like they've been ignored or if they're answered inadequately. Again, sometimes we try to put a Christian spin on the sentiment, right? When we feel this way, we get a little scared at the feeling, and so we start saying, well, why is it that, that God has responded this way that I don't quite understand? Why hasn't he answered my prayer in the way that I expected him to? I thought God was good. And so we start telling ourselves this story, right? God is not human. God is completely other. He created everything, right? He is God and he is not man. And so we start telling ourselves the story of like God's got a lot of things to worry about, right? He's got the whole world, all of human history he is reconciling. Am I just a voice calling through the phone tree that he doesn't have time for? The first thing we learn from our psalm, that God is not distant, detached, or this is the philosophical word we might use, that God is completely transcendent. That means he's, he's uh, unreachable by us, right? Completely transcendent. The first thing that we learn from this psalm is that our God is not distant, detached, or transcendent, but he is personal, involved, and condescends to us. Let's look at the beginning, the first seven verses of this psalm. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God I called from from His temple. He heard my voice, and my cry came to His ears. There's a few things we can learn here. In verses two and three, David is repeating to himself truths that he already knows about God. God is a fortress and a deliverer. You can almost imagine him, right? He's facing something scary, and he goes, "I gotta pray." He's like, okay, I'm going to start with who God is. I'm going to remind myself who God is. God is a fortress and a deliverer. He saves me from my enemies. And he goes on. He goes, well, if this is true, then I should tell him what's going on in verses 5 through 7. What's going on in my life? Waves are encompassing me. Destruction assails me. Death confronts me. In verse 7, I will call upon him, and I know that he hears my voice. And we could almost pause right here because the question is, okay, God hears the voice. We know that it's true, but will he do anything about it? Will he respond or will this transcendent God be relatively indifferent to another mortal's plea? Even if this divine being hears, would his response be, I've already got another plan in motion? You're just a cog in the machine of my plans. The fates are set. But verses 8 through 16 describe a powerful response. We're going to look at 8 through 10. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. What David writes in his psalm to his people is that I cried out to my God about what was going on in my life and he responded powerfully. He moves in the earth, reels in rocks. The foundations tremble and quake i got to be honest, most of us, when we pray, would love a response like this. <laughs> we would love the earth to quake. We would love something besides the painful silence that we feel like we hear, right? We just want to hear the voice of God speak to us. But you know what's interesting about David writing these words that the earth reeled and rocked, that the foundations of the sea were visible if you weren't to go past, verse 10, is that David doesn't experience any of this. Maybe in verse 15, he talks about how God scatters the arrows of his enemy, and God had delivered David from enemies before, but it wasn't nearly as miraculous as we would see in the stories of Moses and Joshua. David wasn't there when God parted the Red Sea or thundered from Mount Sinai. He knew that God could send calamity, but David's experience was much closer to ours than it was to Moses's per se. And there's something very important that we can learn about this. David's language here is drawing upon Scripture that he read and believed to be true, though he didn't personally experience it the same way. David prays in language that draws upon Scripture that he read and believes to be true, although he didn't personally experience the same thing. And we should do this. It may have been easy for David to draw the conclusion that because God didn't respond to his prayers in the same way as he did with Moses and Joshua, that God must not have cared about David personally. But what is amazing about David's prayer is that he uses the scriptural language from other people that he's read about to confirm for himself that God does indeed care, even if I don't see him act in the same way. Look at verses 17 through 20. This God has come for me. His anger isn't directed at me, but at my enemies. For those that hated me, verse 18. The Lord was my support, verse 19. And verse 20, he rescued me because he delights in me. And I cannot overemphasize this enough. God cares personally about your prayers because he delights in you. God will bow the heavens down to earth because he delights in you. If you don't think that God... Is willing to enter your story, your prayers will be half-hearted. If you don't believe that God delights in you, your prayers will be half-hearted. You'll be sure that God won't actually grant anything that you request because you can't change the fates, and God doesn't really care about you, and he's already set his plan, and you're just a piece of it. But that's not how the Bible describes God. The Bible describes God not just as powerful to enter his creation, but doing so because he loves you, He delights to hear from you, the good and the bad, the waves crashing about you and the enemies besetting you. The first thing that David's people needed to know and that we needed to know about our prayers is that God delights to hear them because he cares about us personally. This brings us to our second point. We might be thinking that God may delight in some righteous people, right? Like, of course he delights in David. David was pretty righteous. Noah and Abraham, they were pretty righteous dudes. Of course they get their prayers answered, but that's not me. I've disobeyed God over and over and over again in truly horrible, awful, and disgusting ways. I just want you to try to imagine the last time you truly disappointed someone. Maybe it was recently. Maybe it's it's a while back, but just think back to that moment. Um... When Alora was born, my daughter, uh, you know, having a child is a stressful time, and I got hung up uh, somewhere else, and so Margaret had been in the labor and delivery room for a while, and I came into the labor and delivery room, uh, and I made some derogatory comments about the Puerto Rican healthcare system. And the doctor took offense. And although I apologized immediately thereafter, and I realized that I was speaking from, from a dark place in my heart, There was something about the relationship that was not quite right, so much so that a few weeks later at a follow-up appointment when we went, we were cordial and nice. There was, you know, she had offered for, uh, I'd asked for forgiveness and she'd granted it, right? And so our relationship seemed at peace, and yet sitting in the room, it just felt like something was between us, whether it was my own shame um, or whether it was something that we were both bringing to the conversation. When you've disappointed someone, it leaves a mark. The relationship doesn't quite feel the same, and I think We believe that God works the same way. And in fact, David does too. Look at verses 21 through 31. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And you know what, David is right here. If you can be righteous and clean before God, you will get the reward that God says you will. The problem is that we all know that we haven't. And frankly, we're looking at David going, he is off his rocker. Let me remind you a little bit about who David is. He lusted after and coveted another man's wife, plotted to take her as his own, tried to cover it up, and eventually had the man murdered. This man believes that he is righteous? This man has clean hands to keep the ways of the Lord? He's blameless? Shouldn't this strike terror into David, not confidence? Here's what David believed it wasn't in his own self made righteousness, but David believed that God was able to truly forgive him for sins. That if David repented, that God would not hold a grudge against him. That although David would experience the consequences of his sin, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you remember us talking about that. That although he would experience the consequences of his sin, that his God was a God who was merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping the steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. One commentator had this to say about David in this moment in this passage. He said, "It's often remarked that if David was a great sinner, he was also a great repenter. And despite his occasional but serious lapses, David, as we meet him in Scripture, lives his life with God at the center. The Christian life is not just of one uh, a, a life lived where we just ask for forgiveness one time. It's a life lived in repentance, a life lived with God at the center." Another commentator would say it this way, David believes in God, thinks about God, imagines God, addresses God, prays to God, but he also forgets God, disobeys God, sins against God, and ignores God. Does that sound like us? (laughs) That sounds like me. But God is the reality that accounts for and defines all that David does and says. The largest part of David's existence is not David himself, it is God. Is the largest part of your existence God? Or would history say that the largest part about your existence was you? It wasn't David's sheer force of will to reorient his entire life around God. That's not what caused David's life to reorient. It was God's gracious redemption of David. Look at verse 33. David says, "'God has made my way blameless.'" In other words, David believed that his relationship with God was not hindered by his sin, but that God's love for him would overcome his sin and make him blameless. And that reality, that God could even overcome such atrocious sins as David's, could give him such confidence to say that I am clean before his sight because he has forgiven me. Your relationship with God is not hindered by your sin. It is overcome by God's redemption. In our last point, I spoke about how God condescends powerfully and personally for us. And the most powerful and personal way that God condescends to you is when the heavens bowed down and Jesus Christ, God himself, came and was crucified for you. On that cross, thinking of your sins, a powerful and personal redemption that actually forgives you of your sin, that actually makes you clean in God's sight. It is right for us to pray like David because of this powerful and personal redemption that Jesus worked on our behalf. Now, I imagine that for most of us, it would be pretty difficult to pray as confidently as David prayed right here. We would kind of read through this and we would shy away from it knowing, well, I don't necessarily feel that way. But I hoped that we could, if I could change the words just slightly, and if I could just interject in Christ. Let me kind of read through those verses again. In Christ, you are righteous. In Christ, you have clean hands. In Christ, you are able to keep the ways of the Lord, his rules, and his statutes. In Christ, you are blameless and you are kept from guilt. In Christ, you are rewarded. Sons and daughters of the living God, no longer estranged or far off or enemies of the living God, but children. I bet you that if you prayed like this with such confidence that Jesus Christ had redeemed you, it would transform your prayers because it would not only make you bolder in what you would ask for, but it would also make you more humble. Bolder because you would ask for victory over sin in places that you never thought possible. You would ask to be more generous and have more opportunities to serve in his kingdom. Your entire life would be lived with God at the center and you would ask him to say, God, do this in my life. But you'd also be immensely more humble, humbled by the fact that his kindness to you in Christ Jesus was greater than you could have possibly imagined because it actually makes you clean. There's no more sitting in the room with that awkward silence knowing that there was something that hasn't quite been resolved. It is paid for. We know our prayers are heard, and we can pray boldly because God condescends to us personally, but we also know that he hears our prayers despite our sin because he is a redemptive God. But there's one more area where we doubt our prayers, and that's when we're suffering. When when we're suffering, it's easy to think that God is apathetic towards it or that he's impotent, right? Like either God doesn't care, or if he does care, he doesn't care about me enough to do anything about it. David experienced suffering too. And the experience of his suffering he reflects on in this passage is at the hand of his enemies in verses 38 through 46. Now, not all of us like David would be able to pin all of our sufferings on a particular uh, enemy. (laughs) But I wonder if you've ever considered that God will give you victory over your enemies. We're all suffering somewhere in our lives. And... Honestly, with our immense amount of wealth, we're able to insulate ourselves from our suffering and distract ourselves from our suffering. But I promise you that if you boldly asked God this week to show you where you are suffering, He would do it. Sin affects us all. He would show you the broken relationships that were never restored, the wandering children, the business downturns, the sick parents, the loneliness of having to move and reestablish relationships year after year, the failing of our bodies, the strength loss, the chronic pain and depression and illnesses. These are our enemies. This is where we suffer. And God is not apathetic or impotent against our enemies. But I think if we were to read, if you just took some time to read through verses 38 through 46, I think you'd kind of be shocked by the language. And oftentimes I have Christians tell me that it would be wrong for Christians to pray that we would have victory over our enemies like this. I mean, let's just, let's listen to a few. Verse 38, I pursued my enemy and I destroyed them. Verse 39, they fell under my feet. Verse 43, I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth, and I crushed them and stamped them down in the streets. It's pretty strong language, fighting against our enemies. And I think that Christians think that it would be inappropriate to pray this way. After all, Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, and it didn't seem that he meant to pray for their demise. And you'd be right, Jesus did tell us to pray for our enemies. But that doesn't mean that Psalms is wrong. There's a couple points I need to make here. When we pray prayers like this, we pray that Jesus as the rightful king would execute true justice in his timing and his manner. Let me say that again. We pray that Jesus as the rightful king would execute true justice in his timing in his manner. We are not the kings. He is and his judgment will be just whether he forgives that enemy by the purchase of his own blood or whether it be by eternal damnation. David prayed as the king of God's people. He had the authority to define who the enemies of God's people were and why they were worth conquering. For us, Jesus is that king. He has the authority to define our enemies and know why they are worth conquering. And because we don't, we pray for all of our enemies. So if you are one of those people who can kind of um, focus the, 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 the bulk of your suffering on one particular embodied enemy, some person that has deeply harmed you, you pray for them not because it is safe to be around them again and not because they should suddenly be trustworthy, because, um, but because God is so powerful that he might save even them. And even if he doesn't, we know that his victory over them will be swift and decisive. There will be no tyranny, abuse, or sorrow in the king's land. And that brings us to kind of the second thing we can learn from this we can rest that our king is neither apathetic to our sufferings or to those who cause it, nor is he impotent. I mean, look at how it's described here, and just like put in Jesus. Jesus is not apathetic to cancer and the suffering that it causes. He conquered death. Jesus, God made Jesus' feet like the feet of a deer in verse 34. With a hand trained for war, with arms bending, a bow of bronze, with a shield of salvation... Why did God give him all of this warlike imagery to Jesus? Because Jesus was going to battle to defeat the most ancient enemy that we have ever had, death itself. And not just death, but everything that plays on death's sides, everything that leads to death. This king was coming to undo and subdue underneath his dominion. He did not stop, if you kept reading past 36 until his enemy was defeated and death was consumed, he thrust death through And death turned to flee and called out to God, in some sense, for redemption, but there was no voice that would hear him, because death would be beaten as fine as the dust of the earth. Jesus would trample over death. And not just death, but everything and everyone associated with it. Whatever kind of suffering, cancer, relational, systemic injustice, racism, abuse, and torment, the enemies of the resurrected one, the very enemies of life itself, stand no chance to the resurrection and the life itself. But notice the last part of verse 36. It says there, your gentleness made me great. There's a gentleness that makes Jesus great. In the midst of our sufferings, he's not only powerful and willing to intercede on your behalf and will do so come the end of days, but he's also gentle with us. Isaiah will say that he will not break a bruised reed. You guys feel bruised by your suffering? Wounded and hurt? Jesus is not ignorant to it or blind to it. He will not break A bruised reed. He longs to hear us pray that our enemies might be vanquished, that we might have relief from our sufferings. And we pray to see this in a couple of different ways. We pray to see little glimpses of death beat down in our own lives so that we might live new resurrected lives of holiness. But we also pray that there might be relief from the torments of life, war, illness, strife, and hatred. We pray for these things because the king wants the same thing. The king wants his enemies vanquished and removed from his lands, and he will not fail to do so because he is our rock and our refuge. And this is a beautiful imagery when we start to imagine that Jesus is this rock and this refuge. Because even if your suffering is leading you straight to death, when your life is hidden inside the rock and the refuge that is Jesus Christ, you know that even in death it will burst forth in new life again because Jesus himself is not in the grave but has conquered death itself. He's our rock and our refuge. I hope that you have seen thus far that all of these things are rooted in the very character of God himself. How do you know that your prayers are heard? Because this is who God is. When you're praying for a rock and a refuge and a forgiveness of sins and destruction of your enemies and relief from suffering, this is who God is. A God who is personal, delights in you, overcomes your sin with his love, and will trample down the enemy of death. I hope you see that the very character of God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That the same psalm that David and his people prayed is the same psalm that we can pray. The only difference is is that we have a clearer picture of who the king is. See, David's nearing the end of his life here at the end of 2 Samuel. He's, He's close to his deathbed. And he knew he was not the king the people really needed. But David knew that God would never, ever fail in his promises. And God had made a promise to David. And he said, I will raise up a king from your house. And this king will rule forever in perfect rule. And so the words of this psalm come back to us. God is our refuge and our strength. And we know more of the story than David did. We know the resurrected king. We know that this resurrected Lord delights in us, that he has redeemed us and will vanquish all of our enemies. Your prayers do not fall on deaf ears, but your prayers fall on the rock, your refuge, and your salvation. They fall on the very character of God himself, and he delights us. In you. one of the ways that our king the rock and our refuge uh, reaffirms this promise to us and um, this promise of redemption to us is through this meal we call this a sacrament a sign and a seal of his love for us where his broken body and his spilled blood confirm for us that these promises are still valid that although his body was broken and his blood spilt, that resurrection happened and right now we share this little meal with him but we hope in that uh, day to come where this meal will be made real and tangible in front of us where we'll be at a table with all of our brothers and sisters all those who have been redeemed and all of our enemies vanquished and all every tear wiped away and when we're with the king in that day we will see a clearer picture of our rock and our refuge The night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and having blessed it he broke it and he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I'm ministering his name now give it to you And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. Now this meal comes with a warning from our Lord to examine yourself before eating and drinking of the body and the blood of Jesus to make sure that you can discern the promises that are contained therein. And usually how we summarize this is we say that if you're a baptized member of a church in good standing, then this table is for you. You don't have to be a member of Trinity Church or our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, or believe in the Westminster Confession. Simply united to the Rock and Redeemer, and living in a repentant, God-centered life. If this is not true for you, then I'd remind you of this warning, and I'd ask you not to participate in this meal until it is true. And if you'd like to know more about how that's possible, talk to myself or Kyle or any of our staff. We would love to help walk you through that. But I also don't want you to think that you should just leave. There's a prayer in the back of your bulletin. Love for you to make use of that uh, and stick around for the end of our service. In a moment, I will pray and then we'll come down the center aisle to my serving sta- the serving stations on my right and my left. There's gluten-free uh, bread option available on my left. If you require that, you're going to want to go that way. And then there is clear grape juice and red wine. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Lord Jesus we so quickly forget your delight in us that you loved us so much that you would deliver us we ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would allow us to taste this goodness in our mouths that we would be able to see your goodness towards us in this meal and that we would be spurned on by it to renewed holiness to live lives with you at the center, amen.